Hello, everyone. Welcome to the introductory episode of Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor Kripivin, and I'm co-hosting this podcast with my good friend, Chris Kay. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. While Chris and I were undergraduates at Rutgers University, we served together in Rusev, the Rutgers University Student Assembly. There, we gained experience in parliamentary procedure. While at Rutgers, I major in physics and mathematics, and now I'm at Stanford University where I'm doing the Applied Physics PhD program. Rules have always fascinated me, rules of nature and rules that we govern ourselves by. I'm by no means an expert on parliamentary procedure, but I hope this podcast helps to bring about some social awareness of parliamentary procedure and its hidden impact on our everyday lives. Chris, would you like to introduce yourself? Why, I think I would like to. Um, So hello everyone, like Victor said, I'm Chris. Uh, I went to Rutgers, and I studied history and philosophy, as well as political science. And right now, I'm at Boston University, uh, working on my JD at the School of Law there. Um, like Victor, I did uh, RUSA. We also did Mock Child. And then, also like Victor, although not with Victor, I did Model Congress in high school. And uh, so all of those things, all the sort of like model government simulations have really made me interested in government. Uh, procedure and I mean the fact that I'm in law school and pursuing all of this has only furthered that sort of interest in all of this so I'm like Victor by no means certainly an expert but as the parliamentarian in Russo I had to work with a lot of Robert's rules and in law school like civil procedures in some ways very similar once you actually start reading the like different procedural differences they're very interestingly intertwined but yeah I'm looking forward to this Uh, experiment. So I think the goals that we have here today are to just provide a brief background to parliamentary procedure, as well as get an uh, idea of what happens on in the most important parliamentary body of this country, Congress. And then additionally, we want to talk about how congressional procedure arose in this country to lay this foundation for our next few episodes. Chris, could you tell us about how parliamentary procedures got started? Right. So, well, the background of parliamentary procedure is the creation of parliament in the first place. And parliament grows up out of this sort of English tradition of a whole bunch of nobles being in a council of the king. And then over time, as sort of a middle class emerged, you get the house, uh, like you, the, the lower house that represents the people. And then once you have these two houses and they're increasingly bearing the burden of like passing legislation and actually ruling the country. There's a need to systematize the process. And this systematization of, uh, of the process is really where you start to see parliamentary procedure take shape. So like the most famous parliamentary procedure manual that we have right now is um, Robert's Rules of Order, I think would probably be the most famous. And that was written in, I think, either before or immediately after the Civil War. So We see from maybe the 1600s all the way up until the 1800s, and then our modern uh, systems are very sort of interconnected through that span. To add to that, we also have the famous rules like Jefferson's Manual, as well as several other authorities. Right, and Jefferson uh, Manual comes from where, Victor? uh, Thomas Jefferson, I believe. Oh, but I I sort of meant which body does it address? I believe it addressed the House of Representatives, right? Yep, although technically... It was written for the Senate because it was modeled on the... I think it, he initially wrote it because he was the vice president at the time. And the vice president... He was one of the few vice presidents who actually like sat in the chamber and served as the president of the Senate. Did John Adams participate? I'm not sure. I, think I, I know that because I think if you read the... Uh, re, if you read the beginning, like one of the introductions to the, to the Jefferson Manual is this little story of why he actually even decided to write it. So we were talking about how parliamentary procedure got started. Right. So I imagine in order to have parliamentary procedure, you must have a parliament first. Right. So how did parliament get started in the United Kingdom? The English started their kingdom. They had these nobles called barons who got writs to come to parliament to advise the king. In return for their advice, they they eventually gained more and more concessions like the power of taxation whether or not the king could just tax the people and all these sort of rights. And the parliament sort of became the people's intermediary with the king. 
and so they were the way that like we decided what laws were going to be for the people and in that process um we sort of get a parliament where because the people have all the money and the power and the king is sort of one guy and needs their support we see this evolution of the constitutional democracy that is england and now great britain and through the common law tradition once the revolution happened and the colonies separated we carried on that sort of constitutional framework what emerges out of parliament is the idea that everyone is heard that there's a committee system that there's a chair of the body as well as the chair of every single committee in parliament another big part of parliamentary assistance is that motions are made so anything that's debated before parliament is debated in the form of a motion and a motion is just a resolution by the assembly by the body that's considering an issue to do something there are main motions which is for example in congress a main motion would be a law or a nomination to let's say if the president uh, nominates someone the senate confirming that nomination would be a motion as well as uh, subsidiary motions, which are motions that amend something or do something else in relation to the main motion. And then there is also incidental motions, which are kind of the, and this incidental and subsidiary motion is actually not an official term that's used in Congress, but it's primarily actually used in um, authorities like Roberts rules. And incidental motions, essentially how Roberts rules classifies them, are motions that just arise from the fact that something needs to be immediately done. Um, we'll discuss the above in more detail, but in general, this is just an overall outline of what happens in Congress and what happens in a parliamentary body. Yeah, just any, any body that's organized, um, part like, as, as more, pretty much any governing body that I can think of. Corporations are kind of sometimes designed differently, but I don't know if I can think of a single governing body that doesn't have some sort of committee structure. Like if you look at like the universities, uh, everything's run by committee. If you look at, you know, state level, everything is, it's a very ubiquitous sort of system of organization that you might not recognize sort of operates and organizes a lot of the things that we're involved with. And just like you said, everything, though all authorities don't call it emotion. The idea that you debate and discuss something and then you vote on it is, in essence, what a motion is. Motions are kind of ubiquitous in a lot of places as well, even though they might not be officially called a motion. Just to get an idea of what a motion is, let's say you're with a group of friends and you're deciding what movie to go watch, and then you, for some reason, decide to take a vote on what movie you want to go vote watch together. That is a motion, essentially, yeah. at the core of it. So would you say that's one of the beneficial parts of the parliamentary procedure is that it kind of allows for organized debate structure? Like, Yeah, I think one of the main ideas behind parliamentary procedure is that everyone debates something and then in an orderly fashion, everyone takes a vote so that we know that we're going to debate this for this amount of time or we're going to debate this under these conditions. And then once we're done debating, once everyone's heard, we take an orderly vote. I think parliamentary procedure is really important because it allows us to, in a fair manner, make a decision instead of making a decision. I do have one question since you did say fair. Do you yeah. think that it's going to be fair, though? I mean, like, it seems like if we just take a simple vote, it'll just be whatever the like majority wants every time. Well... I think it depends on what your uh, values are for a particular issue or a particular body or a particular type of forum. So on some issues, yeah, a majority will usually make the decision and it kind of makes sense. We embody the idea of majority rule in this country and the majority should in essence make most decisions. But at the same time, we value certain ideas in a much more important sense. So that's why for example, constitutional amendments require two-thirds vote in each House of Congress before they can be submitted to the states for ratification. So in that sense, instead of the normal majority vote, you would need a two-thirds vote. While the minority might not always be victorious at the end of the day because they simply don't have the numbers, at the same time, the minority will be heard. They'll have a chance to convince others to join their ranks. They'll have a chance to convince others that their ideas are the best for the current time. Well, 
Yeah, there is something to be said for constantly debating like issues so that we can have some good ideas, right? But I mean, isn't it a little frustrating when you want to actually do something? Like I know personally, there's some, like in Russo, for example, we have what, like three hour long meetings and sometimes that would be just to debate like a decision whether or not we should have a sensible um, allocation system or an insane one. And like, so I guess what I'm saying is like, those kind of things where like you have three hour long debates about some minutia that maybe two members of the body really care about like how do we deal with the fact that sometimes hearing things to their full conclusion is so long-winded and kind of annoying well hopefully these really long-winded discussions can be at first addressed in the committee i mean the whole idea behind the committee system is that uh, individuals with very different perspectives will be assigned to similar committees and in these committees these issues can be resolved and then hopefully these two people they mentioned could come to an agreement and when they do come to an agreement we can have uh, a resolution that they both can support and then when it gets before a chamber it can be passed relatively simply because there won't be much objections because both sides have come to a compromise mm -hmm. well one one other thing that makes me think you said both sides but we also discussed well committees all exist and presumably have lots of members but then there are also these committee chairs themselves and it seems like there's a potential for committee chairs to kind of exert undue influence because as you know and as i know they have some pretty spectacular powers when it comes to controlling what their committees get to do and uh, even like the 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 actual general bodies committee chair generally you know the chair is incredibly powerful so how do you reconcile that big power of a chair and a committee trying to represent the voice of the committee i think it really all at the end of the day depends on what the body itself allows the chair to do so, for example, let's bring up two different examples that you've mentioned here. Let's talk about our experience in Rusa with the Rusa president as a chair of Rusa. But let's contrast that with the president of the Senate, the vice president, and the pre vice president's role in the United States Senate. They're, they're both formally chairs of each individual body, but the vice president really only gets to say a few words every four years when he announces the results of the Electoral College. That's true. And and various other times, the vice president has no authority to even speak before the Senate unless they're deciding a point of order or ruling on a, on a, really just ruling on a point of order, ordering the clerk to do something in a formal way. And essentially anything the vice president does in the United States Senate is always subject to appeal. And Well, isn't that, a, isn't that true of any chair, though? I mean, isn't that in a certain sense, I think that's like kind of the beauty of the chair is that... Uh, Absent yeah. objections, the chair has sort of absolute. Yes, exactly. So, like I said, whatever the parliamentary body or the assembly, in this sense, if the if there's an objection or if there's an appeal from the decision of the chair, goes the chair's way or goes against the chair, then we have two very different outcomes and two very just different results for the chair in terms of their soft power in an assembly, like. Um, like, for example, when I was a freshman and sophomore in Rusa, our standing rules for, allowed the chair to only be overruled with a two-thirds vote. Uh, and that gave the chair a lot more authority than later on when we only needed a majority vote to overrule a decision of the chair. Similarly, in the Senate, previously when the Senate was relatively small and all the senators were collegial with the vice president, there was no really partisanship in Congress. The chair seemed to active participant in Congress. I think uh, John Adams cast a lot of tie-breaking votes, uh, as well as um, Thomas Jefferson. They both were very active in the daily workings of the Senate, because the Senate was relatively small and it was a relatively new position. I think probably at the time of both of their elections, they still were the the second highest voted person for the president. So they were like, it'd be like, imagine if, uh, well, it's not really comparable to today, but like, imagine if, you know, after Obama had won the president, um, 
he had to pick the he had to pick like Mitt Romney as his vice president, and then Mitt Romney sat and ran the business of Senate. Like that would be a little crazy compared to today. I I think if somehow the Twelfth Amendment was never passed, and we got to this age of like instant communication, I don't think there would be an impetus to pass another Twelfth Amendment because. Yeah, because I think what will just happen is the parties would just coordinate the one elector who doesn't cast a vote for vice president, sorry, for the second candidate. So they'll just, they'll just, I don't know, cast the vote for some other random person or just cast a blank ballot and just have one elector only vote. Um, Although you might also just see parties develop differently if that was... uh, Yeah, it's possible. I mean, certainly the way that the Senate has been... I mean, the, the way the members of the Senate have been selected has changed the way that the Senate operates uh, and probably yes. the government as a whole. Yes, true. But at the end of the day, I think the vice president would have lost their position of authority in the Senate regardless because um, I think the senators want to maintain their authority and if they have to treat the vice president as an equal, it gives them less authority than if they, had, than if they didn't. Like, imagine... Imagine, like, a presidency where, like, the vice president and president get into, like, a very bitter feud, and the vice president ends up filibustering a bill on the floor. I mean, you would never imagine that nowadays, but, like, hypothetically, that's possible, and I don't think senators really want to That's that possible. Happen. Although it is an interesting idea that the person who is the second most influential person gets to be the person who controls what is, at least in theory, the most senior of the two deliberative bodies of the United States. If the theory is that the Senate is supposed to be filled with the wise men of all of the states, because those are the people who actually initially appointed the senators, the actual state governments, so presumably the best person of the state government is the one going to the Senate, then it makes sense that the second most uh, qualified candidate to run the entire country would get to be the person to preside in the probably second most important position of the government. I mean, this yeah. is before the House really developed the power of the chair, so, like... Yeah, makes sense. But, I honestly, I don't think Congress saw, or even, not meant I don't think the Founding Fathers expected that we would have such powerful chairs as we do nowadays, at least in the House. I think, I don't think they even expected that we would have such strong partisanship you know, in the House and Senate. I'm not even sure that... I, I, I would have to disagree with that one, because even from the very moment, like, George Washington's probably the only president who didn't get elected because of a partisan uh, view of him. I mean, he was probably just the consensus candidate, but, like, the Federalists and the Democratic, like, Republicans and the, the even just the Federalist-Anti-Federalist debate prior to even the, the Constitution... There's been constant faction factionalism, and it does seem to have been pretty. Yes, it's factionalism, but it's not. It's it was, from what I understood, it was based on issues, not based on just partisanship. So like, you, there was like a pro-administration faction. It was like an anti-administration faction. Then like we had then once Thomas Jefferson became president, and the Federalists were seen as like a treasonous party because of some of their actions. Well, I mean, leading up to world to the world of 1812, right? We had like a period where there was just a one party rule in this country, really effectively, right? Yeah, I mean, the Alien and Sedition Acts, like yeah. people who were opponents of the president were arrested because they said mean things about him. Like that's admittedly at the time there were similar like mad like les majesty laws against monarchs, but of uh, against a person who's apparently supposed to be the mouthpiece of the people, the idea that. We'd have libel laws that protected them so strenuously is a little wild, but. Well, the interesting thing is, like, I believe it was, it was either some members of, some influential members of the House or some other influential statesmen uh, who had a debate about, like, what the style of address the president should be. And eventually they settled down on Mr. President, but some people were proposing to call the president his majesty. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's funny. I've been reading through some of the anti-federalists and the federalist papers lately, and there are some people who even went the opposite way and thought that president even was a little too grandiose a title for someone who's supposed to be uh, the head of a like federal government and not even the national, like the state governments, because, I mean, like, 
in theory, if the well, states are the sovereignties and the national government's just an intermediary of the states to, you know, band together to have mutual protection, there's no reason that the president should be so important. Certainly, if you consider the fact that the legislature is even the people who are like representing the will of the people the most. Yeah, I mean, what you make sense, what you say at the time of the founding fathers is completely true. Like, I know there, I think there was a Supreme Court justice, or even maybe the chief justice, I forget who it was, who decided to run for governor and resign from the Supreme Court in order to do so. Like, I don't think you, I don't think a Supreme Court justice, if they were running for governor and, and got elected, would feasibly decide to resign from the Supreme Court, you, you know? You know what I was thinking? I just read something, I think, yesterday about this. The uh, After the passage of the, speaking of the Federalists and John Adams, when he was leaving office, he appointed his secretary, I want to say of state, to the Supreme Court. And when the guy was appointed, I think it may have been John Jay, although I could be totally off on that one. No, no, no. John Jay was prior to uh, Marshall. Then I was right. off. So Marshall, Marshall was the one who was appointed as when he was Secretary of State. Oh, okay. Then yeah, Marshall. That's there we go. Marshall. The idea he didn't resign immediately. He stayed on as oh, Secretary no. of State. Yeah, like, yeah. He stayed yeah. as Secretary of State. Congress was the only one who was supposed to be like independent from their two branches, like at least enforced by the Constitution. Like, really, the Supreme Court and the executive, like you can hold positions in both. Like, so for example, if a Supreme Court justice ran for president. They could remain on the Supreme Court. They don't have to resign. Or if like, or if like a president decided to appoint himself to the Supreme Court, there was nothing stopping the president from being in both positions. To bring us back, we've led a, we've kind of gone a little astray from uh, the actual parliamentary procedure of Congress, but to sort of tie it back in and bring it back around. What? What? How does the sort of parliamentary procedure play out in Congress, and what is Congress's role? towards just like yeah how do we get all these weird like rules about how to make bills and stuff and how does that go into actually like making congress function let's let's focus our conversation about the house because the house is slightly different from the senate but in the house any any member can uh file a bill in fact i believe even the non-voting delegates to the house can also file bills uh so like the resident commissioner from Puerto Rico, as well as the uh, delegates from the various territories of the United States, they can all uh, file a bill and even sponsor a bill. But then their bill gets referred to a particular committee. That committee gets to, then the chair of the committee basically decides what happens with the bill. The chair can refer the bill to a subcommittee, which can then at some point decide to debate the bill or not. Uh, Really, I believe for the most part, uh, at least the House rules currently, they allow the chair of any committee or subcommittee to schedule a bill for debate, really to their discretion. And some rule, I mean, and there's also some allowance for a ranking member to ask for a certain issue to be put in front of the committee. But once a bill passes a committee, gets approved by the committee, gets reported to the House, uh, basically reporting what that basically means is the chair of the committee says, oh, look, the secretary of the house, or essentially, look, we passed this bill. And so then it can be put on a calendar. And then essentially either if this is a privileged bill, the speaker can decide to schedule the bill for a vote at some point or for debate on the house floor. Uh, If it's not privileged, which most bills are not privileged, um, there's a procedure which they can be put up for a vote, which the speaker again gets to really decide, or the rules committee can decide to write a amendment to the rules in the form of a special rule to bring that bill up for a vote. But let's talk about the bare bones requirements for laws. So each house of Congress has to pass the same bill. So every clause, every word has to be the same at least in theory. Um, really, there's a lot of deference left to each to Congress as a whole to decide whether or not it's the same. So based on the enroll bill rule that the Supreme Court has laid over the years is what Congress says 
passed both houses is what we assume passed both houses, even if there's good evidence to the contrary. A little troubling, I would say, but interesting nevertheless. As soon as the bill is passed by both houses, typically the Speaker of the, of the House and the President pro tempore of the Senate or just the Vice President, they typically sign the bill just attesting to the fact that it was passed by that chamber. Mm -hmm. And then it is moved over to the President to sign or veto. If it's signed, it becomes a law. If 10 days pass, excluding Sundays, and the president takes no action, it becomes a law as long as Congress is still in session. So if if Congress adjourns sign day, which means it won't ever come back into session, so like, for example, if there's a new Congress elected and the new uh, congressional representatives and senators, they assume office on January 3rd. If the old Congress passed the bill, let's say on January 2nd, and the, gives it to the president, so the president could sign it for in the next 10 days, but if the president does not sign it, there's no way for the old Congress to decide to overrule that veto. So therefore, the bill does not become a law, even though the president didn't even veto it. So in a sense, it's called a pocket veto. However, I believe if the old Congress passed the bill and the president immediately vetoes it and it goes back to Congress, Congress could still try to override that veto, even though if the president just waited and not done anything, the, the law, the veto could not have been overridden. So, so this uh, procedure of holding the bill and not um, returning it to Congress within 10 days because the president knows the Congress is going to adjourn is called a pocket veto. Typically in the modern days, Congress is prevent the veto of the president from being exercised in such a manner by just simply having recesses instead of adjournments. So the only time the president can read it, really pocket veto something is in the time period from when the new Congress is elected but not yet in office and the old Congress still passes bills on the last few days before the new Congress takes control. Um, so let's say the Let's say we're in a normal procedure where the president just vetoes a bill. So if the president vetoes a bill, it goes back to the first house that passed it. In this house, let's say it's the House of Representatives, two-thirds of the of the members present and voting, assuming that there's a quorum present, which means at least 50% of them plus one are present. If two-thirds of those people vote to override the veto, it goes on to the next house. In this case, it would be the Senate. And then the Senate has to vote by two-thirds to overrule that veto. Assuming every sen single senator is voting, that's 67 senators to overturn a presidential veto. Technically, it can be 66 for, 33 against, and one abstaining, but also overrules a veto. Now, Chris, yeah, could you tell us about how committees work in Congress? Well... I guess I would say the committees kind of do the, I mean, the vast majority of work that gets done in Congress gets done through its committees. So committees have a couple of interesting roles besides their most obvious role, which is to draft legislation and sort of develop the broad strokes and the biggest and sort of the minutia, but the framework, the minutia, they kind of build the whole house and then they eventually give it to Congress generally to give an inspection and make what are effectively generally more minor edits. The biggest work of making a bill and editing and changing it generally is going to get done in your committee. But the other massively important thing that committees do is just the oversight roles that they all have. So we have all of these federal agencies uh, and they all do pretty important roles and work, but they're overseen on one hand by the president and the executive like branch on the other hand they're overseen by all the committees. So like if uh, the army is requesting like a huge amount of money for the budget, then there's going to be the armed services committee looking into that going like, well, what are you doing with all this money sort of thing? And you're going to have, uh, you know, if, if the, you know, if, if people are starting to say like, Hey, like global warming's happening, happening, we might maybe start a new committee because we want to look into that, which is actually something we've, uh, well, not we've done yet, but we I think it's on the agenda of the newest um, House's commit, uh, 
resources to starting a committee to sort of look into that problem because one of the roles of the committee is to sort of search as well. It's it, there if the general body is this giant sort of mass of people where we finally take real action, then the committees are the sort of investigative bodies that really do the dirty work of actually creating legislation because legislation you actually need to know facts first so you have to fact find and once you fact find you have to then write those facts into reports and the reports can then be analyzed to tell us should we write a bill that like has this amount of tariff or should we write about a bill that has that tariff all that work all that packaging all that developing happens in committees the vast majority of work in congress is the committee work now there are currently 24 committees in the House, as well as 20 committees in the Senate, and there's also five joint committees between the House and Senate, which usually just handle uh, mundane administrative tasks instead of uh, proposing actual legislation. Now, let's talk about particular types of committees. There's something known as a standing committee. A standing committee is essentially a permanent committee of Congress. It exists during every single Congress when new senators and new representatives are elected, when a new session of Congress starts, those committees are still in existence. A standing committee has legislative authority. So what that means is a, the committee can recommend measures to the chamber for consideration. In effect, the committee can review a potential bill. Sorry, the committee can review a potential law and then that law. Well, they can review potential bill. bills as well. They can review potential bills because that's what they do in the very first instance. Someone gives them a proposal and says, hey, this is something I'd like as a bill. And then they have to decide as one of the committee members to even sponsor like a bill or I mean, like other random people can. But like, uh, you know, shift like shifting up the amount of bill, just potential bills that get sent to people is also like to congressmen is a huge amount. And then they shift to that first wave just to get to the like semi-realistic or realizable thing. So, I mean, it is potential laws, but I would say even potential bills because they're ideas in the very first stage and then they get developed through all this whole process. True. I mean, yes, you're completely right. And also there's a whole like process where they search for what's the best law to find. Like they have a whole investigation where they call witnesses in order to make legislative findings to be like, from these findings, we recommend this set of laws. And it's actually, it used to be a lot more important in terms of legal procedure and procedure before the courts, but it seems recently like legislative procedures actually fallen out of favor as an authority in interpreting laws. Um, but it, in the past, uh, courts would actually look at what Congress did in deciding what laws should mean. Well, I mean, I would certainly say it's still, there, there's, in the, the sense that like, we used to actually look directly at what, not we used to, there are some people who used to look at the direct language of a committee when it was trying to write the law and debate the law to figure out how we should enforce it. Because sometimes laws, even once they're passed, are very gray in certain areas. And when you have to figure out what to do, you one can understand why you'd want to look to what, well, how did the guys who wrote this wanted to do it? But we need to sometimes resist that temptation because often, as you know, in the legislative process, you have people making, maybe they say things for one reason and they want the legislation written one way for another. So like, uh, hypothetically, let's say you're, you know, in one party which has, for some reason or another, kind of been advocating for regulatory capture all left and right so you might say that you're passing an amendment to like help poor people but actually you're trying to give tax breaks to the rich and you're trying to just have it on the record that you're doing something like admirable but you're really just slipping in something that does something the opposite that's why we kind of don't want to look at well what did they say this law was going to do because sometimes they're disingenuous politicians are politicians at the end of the day and to follow that Committees also have oversight authority. As you previously mentioned, they monitor agencies, programs, and activities within the committee's jurisdiction. So committees are assigned certain topics, and committees can perform oversight on those topics and propose legislation. And the final really important part of committees is their ability to recommend authorizations for government programs. So the committees can say, let's say the Committee on the Judiciary can recommend how much money 
the judicial branch should have to spend for the next year. Uh, the Committee on Armed Services can probably propose we should spend this much money on the military next year. Of course, this authority will be slightly shared with other committees in some instances where in committees' jurisdictions overlap. But in general, each committee has its own jurisdiction where they can recommend this is how much money we should spend on something. And to drill down on that idea of the committees having overlapping responsibilities, you have to remember that there's also oftentimes a Senate committee that doesn't match up 100% necessarily in their mission, but there'll be a Senate committee that touches on the same ideas as well. So, like, it's an interesting sort of layering that's also like a check and balance system. So it's not just like that one committee, because it'd be really kind of scary in a certain way if one committee wrote all the bills about how we should spend money on the military. But if you had two sets of eyes on it, even if they have roughly similar ideas of what to do, it's still double-checking every time. Exactly. And lastly, there's two special committees in terms of government spending in the House and Senate. They're called the Appropriation Committee and the Budget Committee. So the Appropriation Committee essentially says um, this is what all this is essentially the final version of where all different departments will get their money from uh whereas the budget committee is the committee that's responsible for saying all these committees can spend this much money in the next upcoming year and the appropriations committee is the one who's, who writes the actual bill that delegates this department will get to spend this much money this department will get to spend this much money um Selecting special committees. So, in Congress, there's also committees which aren't necessarily permanent, even though some of them do tend to exist from one Congress to the other. So, for an example of a select or special committee is the Select Committee on Intelligence in the House. However, this committee is a permanent select committee. But in general, select committees exist for a particular Congress or for a particular amount of time between Congresses. Wasn't there a committee on un-American activities, I think? Was it in the 50s? I don't believe that was a standing committee. I think that might have been a special committee or select committee. I think it was in the Senate. That, yeah, I think, I think the House says select committee. The Senate calls um, that calls them special committees. But I think there's when there's also like joint select committees or joint special committees. I think it just depends on who calls them. Essentially, like for this upcoming Congress, there'll be or this current Congress, there'll be select committees in the House that uh, members of the Progressive Caucus have asked for. So there is, there are contemporary committees that occur every once in a while. We'll go over this in a future episode. Uh, then there are joint committees, which are made of both members of the House and Senate. Uh, permanent joint committees usually just conduct housekeeping tasks. And most of these committees do not recommend any legislation. And last thing to know about committees is most committees have subcommittees. And each of these subcommittees have some jurisdiction that they get from their, uh, from their formative committee. And so let's say a committee has jurisdiction on energy and science and technology. There could be a subcommittee on energy, there could be a subcommittee on science, there could be a subcommittee on technology. And then each individual subcommittee will either consider a portion of a bill or resolution and then report back to the committee on their portion and what they recommend to do, or they could consider separate issues that only impact their items under their jurisdiction. So essentially, a subcommittee is a way for issues to be debated in even more detail than it would be debated at a committee level. Now, knowing all that, how does actually, like, how how does the sort of rubber hit the road on all of this? How does the actual, once the bill is written in committees, how does it actually, like, we're on the big stage, we're in the General Assembly, we're debating the bill, we're done debating a bill, what happens? How does it work? What happens here is that because of just the historical precedent and just how each house came to be and how it evolved throughout our history is in the present day, 
it's really easy to pass something in the House that has the support of the majority party. So the House Rules Committee can essentially propose any rule, propose any amendments to the House Rules. So essentially the House Rules Committee can bring up anything to a vote, as long as the majority of the House is willing to vote for it. This allows the Speaker who who designates who the majority members of the House Rules Committee will be to really stack the Rules Committee with uh, people who will expedite the majority party's role in the House. So essentially, if there's a certain bill or resolution that the majority party supports, they can have the Rules Committee write a resolution that essentially says, we're going to vote on this resolution next. or we're Right. So okay, they can fast-track have... stuff. Yeah. And they can bypass. Remember all that stuff we talked about at the beginning of the episode about how, you know, bill the point of parliamentary procedure is to allow us to have deliberation and to talk things through and to give the minority party the right to speak its mind at least before the majority sort of does whatever it wants. And so you're saying the rules can be kind of allows the script to be kind of ripped up, and we'll write new rules and cheat the system that way because we don't have the system. We'll just make our own for each instance. Exactly. So this is one of the, um, I guess this is one of the downsides of the House is there's an ability for essentially all these rules to be bypassed. But in general, I think for the most part, things, at least in the past, on most issues have worked in the right way. Like, for example, when, let's go back to when the Democrats had full control of government in uh, 2009 and 2010 like like the health care bill it went through completely normal procedure it went through all the committees it was debated in all the committees um it was debated in the senate the senate passed it came back to the house for a vote the house passed it and it was adopted as a law like a lot of different pieces of legislature at the time were all um we're all first started out in committees and the chairs of those committees had recommendations on we're forwarding the recommendations from the committee to the entire chamber oh my committee thinks that we should pass this let's pass this bill and there were minority reports where individual members of the minority or the whole minority in the committee had expressed different views but everything went through the formal procedure and everything was everything was debated in a formal way. And I believe there were some things that were changed because they really went down and deliberated on what's the best thing to do. Um, so yes, there is a shortcut to this all, all this procedure, but at the same time, if you have a body of 435 members with a few more non-voting members, it's it would be very difficult if every single person got to propose something and then the House had to sit down and vote on every single issue. So what you're saying is there's some balance. But, do, I mean, balance is one thing. And I, I, I have to admit, you, you're, you're right that a 450-plus body does need some way to have a ability to actually enact legislation and get through the business of the day. But... I, I worry, though, that sort of rule a rules committee, at least the one that we currently have, isn't so much a way to get through the business of the day as it is a tool to shove legislation down people's throats, regardless of the pressure of the time. Like, even relatively, like, slow schedules or empty periods of legislation or, like, legislation calendar, if you think the bill is important enough to whatever your concerns are, you can just sort of brush aside what would be considered best practices. And I know that there may be some justifications for that, but... I mean, I still think that at the end of the day, there is still an opportunity for everyone to be hurt because even though uh, some bills can be fast-tracked, the rules only allow the rules committee to really propose measures that will get voted on if they, cont if they contain certain requirements. Like, for example, the rules say that a special rule can only be really privileged, i.e. it's only realistic that it'll actually get voted on if it allows for a <clears throat> motion to recommit the bill back to a committee. 
So essentially that gives at least the minority the ability to debate a motion on the floor of the House that will that has a minimum debate time set by the House rules. So at least there'll be an opportunity for both sides to be heard, at least in part. Oh, how, but, but like that that's a vote that can be limited very short amounts, like to like a few like half hours. Or even less. Yes, so it can definitely be fast tracked by a lot, but there's no, there's not really a way where there'll be nothing said by the minority. I guess what my position is that we're not talking about some small, you know, municipality where people have to go home at the end of the day and you don't meet again until the next month for your like municipal like body, but like we're talking about the the federal government and these people are passing bills which affect, you know, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people's lives, oftentimes in very important ways. And to me, it just seems like there's really never an excuse to say, well, it would take too long to pass the legislation. Well, maybe it might take a long time, but I would rather have the legislation that's well thought out and well crafted and well discussed before we actually put it to the people and make it actually have the force of law. Well... Yes, that's exactly what normal procedure is for. And I think we should strive to obey normal procedure as much as possible. I um, mean, I think for a large majority of the history of the U.S., it was only possible to go through normal procedure in the House. I think it wasn't until the 1880s when the House allowed the Rules Committee to have some some privilege, but a lot less than they do now. Well, yeah, but the 1880s was like... What, more than 100 years ago? Am I getting my numbers wrong? No, you're right. It's more than 100 years ago. So, yeah. a long time. Uh, it's, yes. a, it's a little bit of a troubling trend to me, this sort of growth of arbitrary power in one committee, which already has a... You know, well, the committee only has that power as long as the majority of the House keeps voting for that committee. Right, but you see the, like, if the majority... The committee gets stacked by the majority... And the majority uses the committee to do whatever it wills with the legislative calendar. So do you see how there might be a conflict of interest to the most yeah, efficient way is. of running anything? There definitely is a conflict of interest. I completely agree with that. All right. Well, that's all I want to hear. Well, <laughs> after talking about the House, let's just quickly mention the Senate. So in the Senate, there's actually no procedure like there is in the House to really bring up something quickly for a vote. There is a procedure by which 60 senators, which is uh, 60% of the Senate... <laughs> That's some fast math. <laughs> ...of the Senate can force a vote on something. But in the Senate, it takes 30 hours for something to come to a vote, which actually is... Re- so even if there's a lot of different issues, to each... The procedure needs to be in- invoked for each in- individual issue separately. However, I believe that it can be invoked at the same time. So, like, for example, um, usually there's just one really big bill, which this is invoked on, and then it limits amendments, limits a bunch of other things to that bill, so that at the end of the day, there's no more time to debate something. You just immediately take a, a vote on something in 30 hours once closure is invoked. If there's no objections, the Senate can technically vote by something by majority vote if no one decides to filibuster, or technically... If the majority really wanted to spend a lot of time and is really dedicated to a certain issue, they could get um, they could get the Senate to really vote anything they wanted. In the past, what used to happen is the Senate used to just uh, the majority used to just keep all their senators in the Senate. They would have they would lay out some cots in the majority uh, parts of the Senate. And then essentially there would be a 24-7 marathon where one senator is filibustering a bill and the rest are just there sleeping, waiting, being woken up every so often so they can go take a quorum vote or something else. And then they go back to sleep waiting for the filibuster senators to stop talking. Like, for example. So senators just have to earn their paychecks? Exactly. Like, because right now the way filibusters work is the senator just says, I intend to filibuster something and then no one ever actually makes them filibuster something. So in the past, like, for example, when uh, the Civil Rights Act was was passed, 
He was the senator, I believe, from either North or South Carolina. Uh, he actually holds the Senator Thurmond. Senator Thurmond holds the record for the longest filibuster in the history of the Senate. And he was the senator from South Carolina. In fact, he filibustered the Civil Rights Act of 1957, oh. where he spoke for over 24 hours continuously. Wow. I mean, like, nice yeah, record, I guess, but maybe not the nicest guy. Yeah, but at the end of the day, his filibuster was defeated because the majority party did not want to not pass the law. They <laughs> simply forced their senators to stay there uh, for a whole day, and I'm sure there was other Confederates that Thurm Hood had who <laughs> might have asked for quorum calls throughout the night or something like that. But at the end of the day, the senator had to stop talking at some point. After each senator gets a chance to speak twice on a certain issue, once that two times is exhausted, an issue has to come to a vote in the Senate. Practically, maybe the majority party should at some point decide to break an old school filibuster by just waiting them out, you know? Yeah. And why not? And if it and if it takes a while, you can just just ref, get a bill that has every essentially everything you need in it for like the next two years as one really big omnibus bill. And then you just wait out the minority until each senator, let's say, in the minority gets to speak there. 24 hours twice in a row 24 let's say times 49 that's 25 times 50 so i mean that's a lot of hours but at the same time that's only like most 100 days right you could congress could will we'll stop essentially they'll be they'll be doing nothing else except for the filibuster but they could wait it out, and they could pass whatever issue is in opposition to the other party. That's very true. That would be an interesting Senate to have. It will take a really long time. But at the end of the day, something could pass. Essentially, anything could pass the Senate once the filibuster is waited out. And then once, once every senator has spoken twice on an issue, if anyone objects... The senator can't speak again, uh, and the Senate can force a vote. So either you invoke cloture by needing 60 senators, or you continue debate until the opposition party has exhausted themselves, and then you go for a vote because each senator can only speak twice on an issue. And once this passed the Senate, passed the House, goes to the president, who can sign it into law. Now, everyone, thank you for being with us today uh hope you listen to the next episode we're gonna be talking in more detail on the rules of the house and the officers of the house uh thank thank you for joining us thanks for joining us everyone the next episode will be more house focused and the ones after that will be even more house focused at least in the immediate future so stay tuned okay thank you very much bye